Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Thank you uh, for the invitation. Um, you know, we'll, we'll virtually have to shake hands and, and have a beer together. Um, but for the moment, you'll have to satisfy yourselves with my screen. So um, the goal today is to go over the contemporary role of surgery in advanced kidney cancer. Uh, in light of uh, all the changes that have been going on, particularly in the last five years. Um, and I'll get to the punchline first. The punchline remains something that honestly has been true for decades and, and is now probably more, more important and more true than ever, and that is patient selection. So to do this well, to do this right, it's all gonna be about how do you pick your patients uh, for the different treatment algorithms. So as most in the room, uh, most across the state know, um, cytoreductive nephrectomy has been an integral part of our management of advanced and metastatic renal cell carcinoma for years. And it's been woven into all kinds of different guidelines. And frankly, a lot of that uh, was born out of old data. This is data that I'm old enough to remember when these trials came out. Uh, but this was back in the cytokine era where effectively we were using drugs that for all intents and purposes really didn't work very well, uh, specifically interferon in this case. Uh, and randomized trials showed that if you combine cytoreductive nephrectomy with systemic therapy in the form of interferon, uh, patients did better than if you did systemic therapy alone. Um, and that was very predicated on performance status, um, but nevertheless, that was the data. And for years and years, uh, we essentially translated this uh, into practice even when we began to learn more about the molecular biology of renal cell carcinoma, came to understand the role of BHL, HIF, downstream uh, VEGF targeting, uh, and we came up with a whole series of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, sort of the first wave of more sophisticated therapy for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Um, and we basically just assumed for a long time that the data in the cytokine era with interferon translated over into the use of tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And we were encouraged by data like this. This is from the International Metastatic Renal Cell Carcinoma Data Consortium, or IMDC. Uh, and in studies of, this is about 1,500 patients who received systemic therapy for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. If you looked at those who got a cytoreductive nephrectomy, they did a lot better than those who didn't. And so again, we took comfort in retrospective data like this that we ought to keep right on doing what we had done for years. Upfront cytoreductive nephrectomy followed by systemic therapy. And a whole host of individual institutional data would support the same. Uh, this particular one's out of the Dana-Farber. Again, demonstrating in the red line that cytoreductive nephrectomy plus systemic therapy did better than systemic therapy alone. You could do a whole series of different meta-analyses and come to the same conclusions. This is a slightly older one, pre-Carmina. This is the one post-Carmina. And every single time, with the one exception sitting up here, you would get all these retrospective studies to the left of, of, of one, suggesting that cytoreductive nephrectomy had an advantage. But there's some things that we could all definitely agree on and that we knew. We knew that the original level one evidence for this approach was only for outdated therapy that frankly didn't work. 
we knew that the results were critically dependent on performance status. For those who were sicker, had a worse performance status, they didn't do well, almost regardless of what you did. And we've known for years that cytoreductive nephrectomy was unlikely to help the patient with the rapidly progressive disease. And I'm, I've been around long enough where I, I've done this myself and regretted it, where you do a cytoreductive nephrectomy and the patient's disease blows up in your face over the next two to four months post-surgery. And, and they never really recover from surgery and they go into this downward spiral they never uh, recover from. Uh, and there was nothing more dissatisfying or disheartening than that type of scenario. And in those circumstances, we knew we hadn't helped that patient. So then about three, four years ago, along came Carmina. And I'm not gonna try and uh, pronounce this because I don't speak French, um, so I'll stick with Carmina. Carmina was a prospective randomized phase three trial. It was intended to enroll 576 patients, and it was designed to be randomized between cytoreductive nephrectomy followed by sumitinib systemic therapy versus sumitinib alone. And the concept was that those who received sumitinib really weren't supposed to get surgery necessarily. When you looked at the publication of Carmina, you can see that the arms were relatively well balanced. Okay, most of the patients, well, all the patients had to be intermediate or poor risk by definition um, because they presented with their primary in place and met. So by definition, they were already intermediate risk no matter what you did. But they were reasonably well balanced, except maybe in the primary tumor where there was a little bit more T3, T4 in the uh, cytoreductive uh, nephrectomy arm. Um, but here's, here's where some of the issues started to happen. Um, and this is not an indictment against the investigators. This is simply the messiness that happens when you try to do prospective randomized trials that involve multiple different therapies. Uh, and that is the observation that, first of all, we didn't get to 576 patients, we got to 450. Um, you can see on, for those who are assigned to go, undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy, 40 uh, never received their sunitinib. Conversely, in the arm that was supposed to receive sunitinib alone, there's a decent number, 38, who went on to receive nephrectomy. So there was some crossover in the arms uh, that was not uh, built into the study design. And again, that's not an indictment on the investigators. This is simply uh, some of the messiness that happens uh, when you do these kind of trials. Um, but the bottom line from Carmina was that despite the fact uh, that we had all these preconceived notions about what we thought the results were gonna look like, the bottom line is sunitinib alone uh, certainly didn't do worse. And, and if you were gonna stare at the graphs long enough, uh, if anything, it seemed to do a little better. Although, you know, fundamentally what the conclusion is is that they're not statistically different. Um, sunitinib seemed to do better. And that was true whether you looked at overall survival or progression-free survival. Um, the median over survival for sunitinib was 18.4 months. The median for nef uh, nephrectomy followed by sunitinib was 13.9 months. You can see the hazard ratios listed there. Um, the trends appear to be similar, whether it was for intermediate or poor risk. And progression-free survivals were similarly not statistically really different. So frankly, particularly for older folk like me who are very you know, used to doing cytoreductive nephrectomies, this is, this is what we did for years and years. Um, this was obviously a little bit disappointing, a, a little bit surprising. Um, and so you look at this data and you say, okay, well, that means we never do surgery again, right? Well, this, this is where the nuances start to come in and this is where patient selection starts to become more and more of an issue. 
first of all, realize that in Carmina, the patients had to be suitable candidates for nephrectomy, which is obviously driven by the urologist and may be viewed differently by different urologists. All of them, by definition, had intermediate to poor risk by older criteria, the Mozart criteria, not the criteria we use now. As a general rule, it tended to exclude those with the lowest metastatic burden, which interestingly are probably the ones most suited to cytoreductive nephrectomy, at least in our modern conception of, of how we do this. And the other observation is, is that the median survival in Carmina was actually not nearly as good as it is these days. Um, the median survival is about 18 months or so, and these days the median survival is closer to two years. So that begs some questions around um, exactly patient selection uh, and therapeutic approach. So how do we sort of try and break this down and come to a more nuanced uh, uh, decision around who we might operate on and who we don't? Well, the first is performance status. So again, uh, we've known for a long time the performance status impacts on outcome. Um, this is retrospective data harking back again to uh, some of the study I showed you earlier out of Dana Farber and Tony Chueri, uh, which basically shows uh, the same thing that we saw in the interferon era. If you have good performance status, such as on the left, those who get a cytoreductive nephrectomy, the red line do better than those who get systemic therapy. If you have poor performance status, those differences are markedly attenuated. There's also been work done that can help us delineate in with more accurate detail who we think might be at risk uh, of doing really, really poorly. So this is work from uh, Brian Culp uh, at MD Anderson. I think he was a fellow when he did this because this is a slightly older study. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Brian and colleagues were able to show that uh, using certain parameters, you could identify patients who might benefit uh, from cytoreductive nephrectomy and those who may not. So the ones who did really, really poorly were the ones with a low serum albumin, a high LDH, clinical T3 or T4 disease, symptomatic METs, liver METs, retroperitoneal adenopathy, or superdiaphragmatic adenopathy. And as you can see, depending on the number of risk factors you had, um, if you had low number of risk factors and you got a cytoreductive nephrectomy, you did really well. If you had a high number of those risk factors, it didn't matter what you did. You did poorly no matter what. So those are those people with that explosive disease, progressive disease that didn't do well almost no matter what you did. And those are the folk you'd like to avoid surgery at all costs. We also are a lot better at risk stratifying these days. So this is the modern IMDC criteria. Uh, and again, Carmina was based off the Mozart criteria. Not a criticism, it was appropriate at the time. Um, but nevertheless, our criteria have gotten a little bit more sophisticated. And so my first message would be that as it relates to Carmina, patient selection remains key. If I work under the assumption that cytoreductive nephrectomy still has some role, who would be the best candidates? Well, the best candidates would be those who have excellent performance status, those who are, quote, good risk. Again, if you have your primary in place in METs, you're almost not good risk by definition. But on the favorable side of intermediate risk, that's who you might consider. Um, the opportunity to substantially debulk. In other words, those who have a very low metastatic burden and probably the most favorable type of person would be those where you have the potential to do an R0 metastectomy at the time of nephrectomy or shortly thereafter, or maybe with SBRT or some other approach where you could get to R0 and give them a treatment holiday. Now, this notion of resectability, so in other words, 
Um, how much morbidity are you anticipating uh, in the course of that nephrectomy? Uh, and then there's the issue around local symptoms, which may play a role. And then there's another whole issue, and that has to do with the fact that we just got done doing a prospective randomized trial using tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and now we're in the era of checkpoint inhibition. And the amount of data in that space as it relates to cytoreductive nephrectomy is virtually none. And so how do we relate checkpoint inhibition, which really is the standard of care now, particularly first line, um, how do we relate that back to this whole notion of surgery? And frankly, we don't completely know the answer to that. And that is a space in which uh, there's a lot of work to be done. All right, so if, if I say that cytoreductive nephrectomy still has some role to play, uh, which I would argue it does, the issue in my mind has really changed and that has to do with what comes first. Do you do surgery first or you do systemic therapy first? And as uh, I think we're going to see in the end and what the default is now is basically systemic first. All right, so what would be an advantage of surgery first? Went through this basically bulk of disease, R0 resection, local symptoms. Uh, and then frankly, you get some patients who are desperately want, want that tumor out. But there are real advantages to neoadjuvant therapy. Um, Probably one of the biggest ones is it is that litmus test. Uh, the patient who explodes with their disease right through upfront systemic therapy, that is somebody who is not gonna benefit from surgery. And in fact, one could view that as somebody who you've spared the morbidity of surgery. Um, so that litmus test is probably the most compelling of all. Um, there's the notion of improving resectability. So in other words, somebody with locally advanced disease or perhaps that a high IVC thrombus could you give systemic therapy and actually impact uh, the morbidity you might expect with surgery? Is that possible? Uh, we can explore, we'll explore that a little bit. Um, and then sometimes uh, on occasion, I've had patients who've done well with systemic therapy and that's actually improved their performance status. Uh, and in particular, given them an opportunity to get their nutrition uh, back in, up to speed. Um, and so maybe those patients are actually better surgical candidates uh, after the systemic therapy. So, if you were going to create a paradigm where you did neoadjuvant therapy, what are the things you would want to know? Well, there's certain basic things, right? You'd want to know the timing of surgery relative to that neoadjuvant therapy. Uh, you would want to know whether or not the neoadjuvant therapy impacted subsequent surgical risk. Uh, you would want to know whether this notion of an improving resectability is actually true or valid. Um, and then really the bottom line is, does it improve survival? All right, so we'll start with helping resectability, because frankly, I will tell you that the timing issue really has to do with the individual drugs. And it's actually very different from drug to drug, depending on their half-life. Half and in particular, the antibody-based therapies, checkpoint inhibition being an example, um, you just have to be aware of the fact that half-life is longer. Although whether you really need to wait for checkpoint inhibitors is a separate issue altogether. All right. So what about extensive retroperitoneal disease? Well, there's some case reports out there where you can take somebody who pre-TKI looks like that and get, get them down to something that looks like what's on the right. These are mostly case reports, to be totally honest, though. There are some uh, small case series and small phase two trials that have addressed this issue. Uh, for example, this one uh, from Brian Reaney, uh, who was at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, but now at Vanderbilt. Um, who did a phase two trial of new adjuvant SNTNIB in 30 patients with what was defined by the surgeon as unresectable RCC, a mixture of patients with METs or not, 
Uh, and you can see that there's a modest 22% decrease in tumor size, consistent with what Sunitinib clearly does. Um, the, um, it was heavily dependent on histology. So if you had clear cell, uh, you did better. Um, and in this trial, at least, about 45% or so of the patients became what was felt to be now resectable. So there was some advantage to this. Uh, they reported comparable complication rates to historical controls, although this is not a direct uh, comparative trial. Then there's been a series of retrospective cohort studies, uh, for example, this one by Cost and colleagues, uh, where these folks had uh, IVC thrombus, uh, and they received targeted uh, therapies, in this case, mostly sinitinib, serafinib, and, and a little bit of, a, of a bev interferon. Uh, and they looked, but mostly sinitinib. Uh, look to see whether this impacted on thrombus size. And you can see that the, the effect was relatively modest. So while 44% had a decrease in thrombus size, 28% that actually increased. And the thrombus level, which is honestly from a surgical perspective, the only thing that really matters, uh, only 12% uh, did it go any lower. And at 4%, it actually went higher. So what that tells you is that it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, and in only one patient did it actually change approach. So if you're using snitinib at least in some of the older targeted therapies uh, in an effort to change an IVC tumor thrombus, I wouldn't get my hopes up. Interestingly, uh, some of the newer TKIs may, may, may have a little bit more uh, promise. Um, there's been a couple uh, very small uh, studies done with pozopinib in the context of an IVC tumor thrombus. Uh, again, Brian Reen, phase two trial, so trying to do this right, 25 patients, all of them M0, and frankly, this trial uh, really was more focused on looking at partial nephrectomies and, and patients trying to get them to uh, partial nephrectomy. Um, but in that study, they, they did get some shrinkage with uh, pozopinib, um, and the response rates in that context was about 36%, so, so maybe, maybe a little bit better. Uh, there's been two Japanese studies uh, looking at the effect on an IVC tumor thrombus, uh, both showing at least a little bit of promise. Um, the one from uh, Terakawa showed a tumor thrombus decrease in three of the seven patients, uh, stable in four. And a study from Okamura, um, actually in this one, they had five level four IVC tumor thrombus patients. Uh, and in three of them, the level actually got down to the point where it would really substantively change your So. Um, promising, uh, but caveat, we're talking about, you know, studies with nine patients, seven patients, so how much, how much can you really hang your hat on that type of thing? Um, and an interesting little study with exitinib, uh, sort of the same story here. Um, if you look at IVC tumor thrombus levels, uh, look at panel D over here. Um, patients with level three, two, and one starting exitinib before with some responses and some change in level, which could change uh, potentially your surgery. Um, so older TKIs, can you really count on the fact that this is really gonna do anything to an IVC tumor thrombus? Probably not. Newer ones, maybe. Uh, checkpoint inhibition, again, there's probably anecdotal work out there. I've got one patient where this was done and it actually had a pretty darn good response. Um, totally anecdotal though. The amount of published literature in that space, checkpoint inhibition, is close to zero. So lots of work, opportunity for the residents and med students out there. 
So what about an actual comparison? What if you actually looked at the sequencing option of surgery first, followed by systemic therapy, or the other way around? Systemic therapy first, followed by surgery, with a plan to do both. So that's the big difference versus Carmina, for example. Well, we have some retrospective cohort studies in this space. Um, so MD Anderson looked at a retrospective uh, series uh, comparing reductive nephrectomy upfront, followed by targeted therapy or neoadjuvant followed by surgery. Uh, again, retrospective series. This is an older study, Brian again, um, Brian Chapin. Um, again, older TKIs. So this is mostly sunitinib, serafinib, uh, bev interferon, so older. Uh, nevertheless, uh, no a difference in overall or severe complications, so that's, that's important uh, in 90 days. A noticeable signal increase wound complications, uh, so something to keep in mind, uh, but no real difference in outcomes. Um, more recently, a uh, retrospective multicenter study looking at patients with IBC tumor thrombus who received uh, neoadjuvant sunitinib followed by surgery or the other way around. Again, Small, small, small series. Um, no difference in complications and a small signal in the blue here that maybe the neoadjuvant therapy folk did better than the upfront uh, surgery folk. Um, but what would we really want? What we really want is the prospective randomized trial. Uh, and in design-wise anyway, we appeared to have it. It's a trial called the SIRTIME trial. Uh, and it was designed as a prospective randomized trial, designed to randomize 458 patients uh, between upfront uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy followed by sunitinib versus sunitinib upfront followed by cytoreductive nephrectomy. Again, was intended to enroll 458 patients. Um, obviously, this is a little bit of a difficult, difficult uh, randomization. Um, and the trial, in the end, had to close after almost six years of attempting accrual uh, with only 99 patients randomized. So um, big caveat, right? The, a significantly underpowered trial. You designed it to do one thing, and you got a lot less patients. Um, same types of issues we see in Carmina where, uh, and again, this is just the messiness of doing a prospective randomized trials. Um, but in the immediate cytoreductive nephrectomy arm, only 46 of the 50 had surgery. If you looked at the deferred arm, uh, 40 of the 48 ended up having surgery after sunitinib. Eight of them did not. Um, none became unresectable, so that was good at least. Um, but the bottom line is that if you look at progression-free survival, there really was no difference. Uh, and again, I would caution the size of the trial would, would, should uh, give you some pause uh, when there was no differences found. Interestingly, a little bit of a signal that perhaps overall survival was better in the deferred arm. In other words, those who got sunitinib up front followed by cytoreductive nephrectomy. Um, and when they tried to break it down to sort of figure out like if you progressed up front versus not progressed up front, would that you clearly separate out those who did better or not? It was a little hard to do so. So sir, time, um, the way I would frame this is it is supportive but not definitive uh, that the new adjuvant approach has a lot of merit. Um, and honestly, it's more out of, out of understanding or realizing that that litmus test 
in my opinion, really is a huge advantage. And so while Sertime didn't prove neoadjuvants better, it is supportive uh, of that approach. Uh, and a further support of that approach is, again, a, a study from the IMDC. This, this is actually in press. It literally came out like just a couple of weeks ago. Um, this is, um, again, uh, the group with hanging colleagues um, and the almost 1,500 patients retrospective. Okay, so take, take that for what it is. Um, but interestingly here, the neoadjuvant approach, the red line at the top here, sunitinib then cytoreductive nephrectomy clearly outdoes the reverse, cytoreductive nephrectomy followed by sunitinib, which clearly in turn outdoes sunitinib alone. Now, why is, why is these two down here different? Why is the blue above the green where Carmina showed they're closer together? Well, don't forget, this is retrospective data. There is a huge amount of patient selection involved in this. Remember also the IMDC only captures those who get systemic therapy. So if you got a cytoreductive nephrectomy alone and, and never uh, made it, you never make it into the database. So there's clearly selection issues here, but what it says is that if you get new adjuvant therapy and presumably do well, because these are likely the people who went on to surgery, you actually can create a scenario where, scenario where your median survival is getting out to three, four years, which is honestly pretty damn good. So in many ways, this is validating and supportive. Is it definitive? Is it absolute proof? Wouldn't say that, but it is at least supportive of the general argument. And yet still many, many questions, right? Don't forget that that study I just showed you and Carmina and Sertime, all of them, all of them use sunitinib, okay? Well, you know, the reality is we don't use sunitinib that much anymore. This space has changed so fast and so rapidly uh, that literally almost every six months we're having to reinvent what our first line systemic therapy looks like and what our second line therapies look like. Uh, checkpoint inhibition is, is arrived and is here to stay. Um, Axipembro is probably the one we use the most right now, and, and that's nowhere on any of these studies at all. So how does this look in the context of the role of surgery? We, we don't really know. Fortunately, there are trials uh, that are coming along that hopefully will help us, uh, a Nordic trial and a SWAG trial. So hopefully we will have some answers, but right now we don't fully know. All right, so fundamentals here. Surgery does have a role to play in setting advanced renal cell carcinoma. However, patient selection and timing to me are the key. As a general rule, our entire operation has completely flipped around. Almost always, we will consider upfront systemic therapy first, and we will deliver that therapy based on IMDC risk. It used to be, essentially, you had to convince me why I should not do surgery. The default was go to surgery first, and then we'd figure out the systemic therapy later. Now, that's completely flipped on its head. The default is uh, to go to systemic therapy first. And the only re real discussion is, should we be doing cytoreductive nephrectomy up front? What are the circumstances where we might do that? Well. Surgery is going to play potentially two different roles. One is consolidative. So where may we consider consolidative surgery? The first might be if you get a complete or near complete response in all the metastatic sites. Don't forget, older trials use the nitinib. Modern 
ones are using this checkpoint inhibition. Not everybody gets a CR, okay, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% or maybe even more might. Well, if you get a CR to systemic therapy, it is awful, awful, awful tempting to go ahead and do that cytoreductor nephrectomy. Uh, and the biggest issue probably is trying to make sure that you don't have undue morbidity where you take them off the systemic therapy and then put them at risk for subsequent relapse. Um, the patient who gets a stable or better response to their systemic therapy but is having local symptoms, um, the one that probably happens the most is hematuria. So if they're having recurrent hematuria, they're in the ER constantly clot retention, and they've done reasonably well with systemic therapy, that person should at least be considered for a cytoreductive nephrectomy. I would caution about local pain. Um, to the degree that pain is due to clot obstruction of the, of the collecting system, okay, fine. If you think the pain is due to local invasion of the tumor, be warned, uh, surgery often doesn't help those folks. If they have a partial response to systemic therapy, I think that's where you have to be selective, and that becomes very, very individualized, and that's where a lot of the nuances end up happening. Is upfront cytoreductive nephrectomy dead? Uh, no, uh, it still has a role, but you gotta be selective about how you do it. Um, where I would consider it, if I've got a bulky primary, and I've got relatively minimal metastatic burden, I might well still consider cytoreductive nephrectomy but I'm not gonna push the envelope the way I used to. The potential R0 resection. So the person where you could surgically render them R0, or maybe a combination of surgery and say SBRT to a solitary bone med or something like that. Somebody where you can basically give them a therapy holiday. Because let's be honest, these therapies are expensive. They carry with them their own sets of morbidity. Um, and, and a lot of these patients are younger. And they, um, you know, they, they would love an opportunity to be able to go about and live their lives, support their families without having to go th through therapy all the time. So by rending them R0, you might be able to earn them some period where they don't require therapy. So you might consider in that uh, circumstance. And then again, this whole issue of local symptoms, which can play a role um, on and off, uh, depending on the situation. So that's, that's the role for surgery now in the context of metastatic disease. Um, we got done just a hair early, so I will just make a mention of the other context in which this happens. Uh, just real brief, Alex, unless, I don't know how many questions we have, Alex. Um, so far, Dr. Drake is going to jump in when, whenever you finish for the quick question and one other one, so go okay. ahead. All right, so I'll keep babbling for just a moment. <laughs> Um, so, so the other, the other issue that comes up and I wasn't sure whether I have time to talk about it, um, has to do with, uh, the, the role of RPL and D. Um, and for full context, I trained with Don Skinner, uh, who was the, the king of, uh, maximally invasive surgery. Uh, so as a fellow, we did an RPL and D on everybody. Um, and for a while there, um, there were those who sort of made the same assumptions about, about bladder cancer must translate over into kidney cancer and RPLND clearly is indicated in everybody. Um, honestly, these days, uh, the data would strongly suggest that RPLND is not indicated in everybody. It, it has a selective role. Um, I will still do it uh, in a setting where uh, I am going for that R0 resection. So in particular, for somebody who has uh, a bulky primary, retroperitoneal adenopathy, 
and minimal to no external disease elsewhere, I will still go ahead and do an RPLMD. And it's not because I necessarily absolutely believe that it's going to make a huge difference in survival, but because it can offer them a drug holiday for a period of time, and because the amount of added operative time is modest and the amount of added morbidity is minimal, um, I feel it's worth that. If they have no radiographic evidence of lymphadenopathy, then I do not routinely do an RPLMD. The other context is, is something that I think is well established now and everybody, uh, presuming it's mostly residents and med students out there, um, has to do with a routine resection of the adrenal gland. These days, uh, I, if there's any plane between and no radiographic evidence of METs, I won't take the adrenal. I'll try and leave it wherever possible. Uh, particularly in the contents of more advanced disease, because frankly, you don't know down, down the line whether they're gonna develop METs in the contralateral adrenal. Uh, and having to be on uh, adrenal replacement therapy is a pain in the butt. Um, so just those in initial extra thoughts since we have a little time. All right, Alex, I'm ready for whatever, whatever these guys want to throw at me. That's great, Dr. Clark. Thank you again. That was a really great talk, really beautiful update of a very sometimes confusing and rapidly changing space. So uh, thanks again. Uh, yeah, Dr. I'll give a different talk in a month. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so. Uh, uh, Dr. Drake is uh, on the line, and he had a quick question that I was hoping he could just uh, pose to you himself. So, Dr. Drake, if you're there, go yep. for it. So, Dr. Clark, I enjoyed that uh, lecture very much. I just point out that for um, immune checkpoint blocking drugs, the serum half-life is 21 days for most of them, but the on-cell half-life is in the range of four to six months. So, it's probably not really possible to, like, wait that out, I don't think. Right. Yeah, but the good news AIs. is that I don't know that you really need to necessarily. Exactly, right? exactly. Conversely, though, the TKIs have much um, uh, uh, shorter half-lives, and some of them are more variable. So I was just curious what your practice is in terms of a patient that you do neoadjuvant TKI. Do you, uh, you know, wait two weeks, some four weeks, some never wait? Yeah, we, we've actually gotten pretty aggressive. Um, so, you know, typically it's probably not more than a month. I think now, now, I got to ask my medical oncology colleagues because I literally almost have to ask this every single time because I sometimes have trouble keeping them straight. But I think Cabo is the one that has a longer half-life, if I remember right. Yes, that's correct. Correct. Um, uh, so Cabo is the one where, where I'll wait just a little bit longer. But for most of them, it's no more than a week. Um, and, and really, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, um, I mean, as we all know, these TKIs aren't like they're mostly uh, uh, holding people in place, right? The CR rates with TKIs are not very good. Um, you know, everybody has, has some rare instances, but by and large, it's not very good. So, so part of the issue with cytoreductive nephrectomy in the setting of TKIs or any of the therapies we're using now is that, is that when you're off drug, potentially you've got disease moving along. So the more you can minimize the time off drug, the better off you are. And so that's where some of this balance point has started to come into play, where it used to be you would push the envelope, you'd do these big giant wax surgeries, um, and you didn't think twice about it. But now, if you do a surgery and you create a lot of morbidity, and you don't allow that person to get back on their systemic therapy, and they have you know measurable disease, uh, that's problematic. So that so that is why we we've we've really tried to squeeze down uh, the time off drug uh, as much as possible. Um, 
So we're, we're pretty aggressive about it. Uh, I have not done it on drug. In other words, I haven't like just kept them on Pazo or whatever or, or Cabo and just operated right through it. I have not done that. Um, maybe because I'm wimpy or partly because there is, there is a little bit of a signal it could have some wound complication issues. Um, and, you know, back in the BEV days, uh, there were some issues around, you know, potentially some bowel toxicity. So, um, so I haven't done that, but we have gotten very aggressive. Thanks for that question, Dr. Drake. Um, there are two questions that kind of have to do with uh, selecting patients for cytoreductive nephrectomy. So um, one is uh, one person, Dr. Gonder, asked, what is the role for cytoreductive nephrectomy for treatment of perineoplastic syndromes in patients with uh, oligostatic, uh, so oligometastatic disease? Oh, uh, boy, that's a, that's a real good question. I, I guess I would put to you that um, it, it's actually similar. In, in my mind, anyway, it would be similar, right? Because to the degree that your perineoplastic syndrome, in theory at least, should be directly proportional to the volume bulk of disease and whatever it's, it's producing that's creating this perineoplastic syndrome, um, if they have bulky METs and they don't really have good control of their disease systemically with whatever systemic approach you're using, it's a little hard to imagine that a cytoreductive nephrectomy is going to make a difference in that context, right? Whereas if you have somebody where the bulk of their disease is in the primary and either the systemic therapy has completely controlled uh, or substantively controlled everything else, um, then I think it might, it might be worth the attempt. Um, but that's hard, right? Because we don't really, as far as I know, and I'm open to someone correcting me, but um, I don't know that we necessarily know in, in great detail the actual relationship between the volume of disease and, and the amount of whatever the hormonal substance is that's creating the perineoplastic syndrome. Um, and we all have had patients um, who've had small tumors, non-metastatic tumors that have created these, you know, really problematic perineoplastic syndromes. So, so the, the volume perineoplastic relationship um, isn't very well defined. So, so that's, that's a tricky space. Um, I would probably just say I count that as a local symptom. And then I would, I would follow down an algorithm that looked an awful lot like what I might do for other local symptoms, hematuria being an example. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, another person asked, can you give an example of a partial response to systemic treatment in which you would think of nephrectomy for a relatively small tumor? Um, Again, I would look at the volume metastatic relationship. So um, if I've got somebody with five, six centimeter primary, um, but you know, cannonballs in their lungs and liver, um, and I got a partial response, yes, okay, so they all kind of shrank a little bit. Um, not so sure cytoreductive nephrectomy, you know, surgical, therapy of the primary is going to really help me. Okay. Uh, but if I've got somebody with a 16 centimeter primary and maybe they had 
three, four small lung mets and, you know, or maybe one big lung met, a couple small ones. Uh, the small ones went away, the big one got smaller, the primary's still there, you know, okay, maybe I do a cytoreductive nephrectomy and, you know, depending on the circumstances, continue systemic therapy afterwards, maybe you do SBRT to that one big lung met and then maybe watch them for a while. And again, it, the, the, the name of the game these days has, has sort of shifted quite a bit, right? I mean, it used, it used to be, well, it used to be, we frankly didn't have a lot of good tools, right? So you only had two tools, really. Um, and if you had a place that could do high dose IL-2, all right, you had three tools. You had interferon, high dose IL-2 surgery, that was it. Um, nowadays, you've got so many tools and so many options and so much sequencing you can go through that the name of the game now is not just how to extend, you know, a person's life, because we've, we've, we're doing that better and better, but how do you do it in a way that keeps them off therapy as much as possible, where, where that's feasible, sometimes it's not, but where feasible, uh, and how do you do it with the least morbidity? That, that's really become the name of the game, is, is extending time at the least morbidity you can and frankly, in some cases with the least cost. I mean, I, I definitely have patients where, um, you know, particularly younger ones, you know, they, they need to work, right? They got, they got a spouse, they got kids, they got family, they got other things they're trying to do, maybe, or maybe they have a spouse that they're responsible for taking care of if they're older. Um, and uh, they need to be available. You know, and and frankly, there are times I, I won't do surgery, not so much because I didn't think surgery was potentially indicated, but because they're on systemic therapy, tolerating it okay, and that allows them to continue going on with with their life and the important aspects of the life that they need. Um, and so I've definitely had patients where that's that's been the driver. It's it's been more about kind of what they need to be doing. Um, you know, on the flip side, you know, there's there's some substantial cost to some of these drugs. You know, I mean, yeah, we've gotten a lot of good options now. Some of them are crazy expensive. And so the financial toxicity associated with some of these things has become increasingly important. And, you know, we're in a state that didn't take Medicaid, right? Like we've got a lot of people that don't have a whole lot of coverage. Um, so how do you, how do you integrate that in, right? So it's, it's um, complicated. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's a very thoughtful approach, thinking about the financial toxicity and some of the implications of these decisions that we make. You know, we, we can think about it at a high level from the clinical trial perspective and, you know, what's objectively best. But when it comes down to the actual patient, sometimes, uh, you know, what uh, may be best on paper may not be best for their lives. So that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Oh, yeah. um, Andre Salas um, asked, uh, what's your experience with wound healing in a patient who's just recently had a TKI? Honestly, I haven't seen the issues that have been uh, brought up in the retrospective series, personally. Um, the, uh, although I will say that, um, you know, increasingly we're not using TKIs as much. So, you know, or, or you know, we keep flipping all the damn time. Um, but I personally really haven't had that problem um, nearly as much. Um, Full disclosure, I haven't systematically gone through it, so could there be a small signal uh, that, that perhaps is there that I didn't pick up on? That, that's possible. Um, but I have not seen an overwhelming signal to say, oh my gosh, this is a huge problem. 
Um, and again, you know, some of the issues we would run into were using some of the older drugs, you know, that, you know, frankly, we don't really use that much anymore. Um, that is the last question for now, unless anyone wants to chime in. We may uh, take a minute uh, extra just to shift gears to our next speaker, if that's okay with you, Dr. Clark. Works for me, guys. Works for okay. me. Okay. All right. Well, I got again, my coffee. I'm good to go for the morning. So, <laughs> thanks again, Dr. Clark. That was really a great review. We really appreciate you joining the Empire Urology Lecture Series. Um, we talked at the beginning about virtual education and how to do it. You know, we're kind of making this up as we go along ourselves, and this has turned into a really um, great series, great opportunity for people to hear faculty from all over New York, but like yourself from all over the country who have joined us and really shown a lot of support. Um, so as things become, you know, slowly go back to normal here, we really appreciate tapping into these. Uh